Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So when you go to sell your company, you're going to have what's called a letter of intent, which is essentially an engagement agreement between you and a potential acquirer. You agree upon the price and the essential deal terms of the deal, but it's non-binding, meaning the acquirer can walk away. But as part of that letter of intent, you're going to have to sign what's called a no-shop clause. And that basically states that you're not going to continue to shop your business to other buyers, that essentially you're getting engaged to this one buyer. Now, what's important in your no-shop clause is that there is an expiration date. Because as you might imagine, as soon as you sign that no-shop clause, you start to lose negotiation leverage, right? They know they're the only game in town. They know you can't negotiate with anybody else. And so you start to lose negotiation leverage. However, if you've got that expiration date, they know that when that date arrives, all bets are off and that you as the entrepreneur are free to go negotiate with anybody else. That's the important critical step in signing your letter of intent. It's something Ryan Bourne knew about and it's, it's one of the big reasons he was able to get more than $20 million for his company, Audio Micro. Here's Ryan Bourne to tell you the rest of the story. Ryan Bourne, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me, John. So tell me about this company, Audio Micro Inc., and your key product, AdRev. So Audio Micro Inc. Uh, was a, it's a digital media company. It operated four brands, AdRev being the biggest one. It's at AdRev.net, AudioMicro.com, ImageCollect.com, and DashGo.com. Um, in short, we would aggregate content um, from around the world. We specialize in music um, and and photos, and we would license that content. We would would um, license the music into video productions. So, sort of the YouTube generation would would license those um, the music files from us at AudioMicro.com. We would license the photos to newspapers, magazines, and blogs at ImageCollect.com, and then at AdRev, which was the biggest. Um, division, we would actually enforce copyright on behalf of music rights holders on YouTube. So when music is used in YouTube videos, we would essentially detect that uh, usage. And then the advertising revenue from those videos would be directed to us. We would keep a percentage for our services and remit um, a large piece back to the copyright holders themselves. And then at Dashgo, we uh, distributed music. So if you wanted to distribute your music into uh, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, and all the places around the world where consumers actually consume music for personal use, we would distribute it for you. So we were a licensing distribution and administration company all under the Audio Micro Inc. umbrella. Wow. Okay. So, so how do you stumble into that business? It sounds super <laughs> complicated. <laughs> Believe it or not, I mean, maybe it's just me. I don't. I don't. It's actually not that complicated. I tend to, you know, tend to be able to simplify it for folks to get it. But stumbling in, uh, well, I guess I'd say like this: I got my cut in content licensing, is what I would call that, um, at a company called Wire Image, and Wire Image is still around. It's at WireImage.com, and I was the controller and vice president of finance. So I'm a CPA. I had worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers. I got sort of burned out of the uh, audit life, um, being an accountant 
And I decided, and being a public accountant, I decided to take a job as a controller at Wire Image, and that was my first foray into content licensing. We were aggregating photos and licensing them, um, kind of similar to my own, my own brand, Image Collect, but uh, we were licensing those photos to magazines and newspapers, mostly print at the time, because that was back when, when People Magazine and, and Glossy Print was still uh, the popular method. A little bit early internet days, I guess you could say. And so when Wire Image got sold, Getty Images bought that company um, in 2007 for over 200 million bucks. And I got my taste for an exit, a very, you know, I wasn't a founder, but I did get a taste. And that was when I knew I loved content licensing. And the reason I, there are a couple of reasons I loved it. Uh, but one, you you don't really have to pay for your inventory. You're, you're able to aggregate the copyrights. And then once you sell them or license them, if you will, you get your you get paid by your customer and then you pay your royalties. So it's an amazing little business where you don't have to outlay any money up front for inventory or manufacture or anything. And further to that, I loved it so that much because even as an accountant, I really didn't like managerial accounting and things like raw materials, work in proce- process and finished goods and accounting for that kind of stuff. That always kind of drove me bonkers even as an accountant. And so I fell in love with with content licensing because you didn't have to do any of that type of accounting. So that's how I stumbled in, I guess you could say. Walk me through the cash flow cycle again. So, so it's a positive cash flow cycle, meaning you collect money from the customer and then over time you pay the artist for their content. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Usually any anywhere between 30 days, 60 days, or even 120 days, depending on your contractual relationship with the client, um, that's when you'll pay them after you collect from your uh, your customer, your licensee. Beautiful. Yeah. And so you left Image Collect and you spent- Wire some, Image. Sorry, Wire Image. And then you, you went to start this company on your own. Was it you? Did you have some founder groups and venture capital money? How did, how did it play out? So I started on my own. Um, I started out of my apartment on uh, Fulton Avenue in Sherman Oaks, and uh, it was all my own money. It was about, uh, I'd say most of my savings um, that I had saved up from my 20s. Um, I went about a year without a paycheck, and I went about 60000 I think it was, or maybe 50000 into into credit cards, zero interest credit cards that I had a year to pay before. Uh, off before any interest charges hit. So at the time, credit was a little bit loose. This is pre uh, pre crash, and um, and so yeah, that was kind of how I financed it. Then uh, about a year into the business, maybe it was 15, 18 months in, I um, we received our first round of venture capital, which was five hundred thousand dollars from a seed and early stage fund in Southern California called DFJ Frontier. And in total, and I'll, uh, you know, in terms of capital, over all of the company's life, we only raised one and a quarter million dollars. It was one million dollars in um, what I guess you'd call traditional VC money. It was from DFJ Frontier, and then two hundred fifty thousand dollars was raised from a company called Fotolio with an F. Uh, that is a stock photo marketplace out of Europe. That eight years later, Adobe bought for eight hundred million bucks. But anyway, they they were an investor at two hundred for two hundred fifty grand in Audio Micro Inc. And so what's what chunk of your equity are you sort of giving up in some of these rounds of financing? That's a good question. Um, I'm fairly open about talking about it, so I'll give you some kind of uh, general framework. So let me start with today. Today I hear crazy things, like absolutely insane things that don't make any mathematical or realistic sense to me, such as companies raising money on $5 million and $10 million pre-money valuations with no revenue, no product, and nothing. And I think that's absolutely crazy. When I get pitched for angel deals now, I'm like, 
I think I'm the worst angel investor because I'm like, no way I'm giving you money. You don't have anything yet. And if I were going to give you 50 grand, 100 grand, 200 grand, I'm going to take a meaningful chunk and your your pre-money valuation is going to be more like a million bucks because you got nothing right now. You know, so back to that, the reason I think like that and I talk like that is because those are the kind of valuations I actually got, meaning I got a very, I had a very low, a very, very low pre-money valuation and my investors for one and a quarter million dollars, uh, I'll just put it to you like this. They actually had a majority of the business. And so what did that, I mean, in retrospect now, looking back on the whole experience, would you, would you have taken the venture capital uh, investors uh, would you may have structured that slightly differently? Like what, what would you have changed about that, that financing option as you grew the business? Well, it's a tough one. I mean, we had a great outcome. So I did well, we sold for, and we can get to this later, but, uh, you know, North, North, we sold a majority of the company for North of 20 million. And so there was enough to go around from for the investors who received uh, over 12 times on their investment. I think maybe close to 12. Maybe it was over 11 times, something like that. Uh, myself and our employees. So we we doled out between 15 and 20 percent of the company to employees. Uh, we had a stock option plan created at the time that the first round was received, and I gave it to uh, you know. It was, team members that joined along the way and, and some advisors too. And so to answer your question, there I don't have any complaints and I think our nor do our investors and I think good success kills all problems. And so I don't want to sound like I, you know, have any reasons to change it. However, you know, look, I could uh the irony of this is it. So Audio Micro Inc. had eight products that it launched. Uh and we're gonna. I'm gonna talk baseball for a second. Two of them were singles. We'll call those mm, a million to, to to less in revenue a year, but self-sustaining. Um, f- uh, five of those were complete strikeouts, complete failures, and one of those was a home run, and it went over the fence. You know, and cracked it. And so. What I'm getting at is we were – our investors believed in us along the way and I never bailed on them. And, and when things fail, we never just shut the company down and reformed a new one for the new product. But in retrospect, sure, it, you could make an argument that, oh, you should have done AdRev as its own entity and you didn't really need VC for that because it sort of took off from the get-go and you could have had it all to yourself. But like I'm not really thinking like that. You know, I'm just happy that everybody – Everything worked out for everybody, and hard work and 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 sales and success cure all problems. Hmm. You know? great, so. great point. If you had an entrepreneur who was asking for your advice, saying, you know, Ryan, I've I've got this business off the ground. We've got a you know a million or two in revenue to really spike the growth. We think we need to bring on some investors. What advice would you give them as they think about bringing on either an angel investor or potentially a venture capitalist? Well, you got to. Th- one piece of advice I'd say is you got to think about whether you ult- you want to cash flow that business and it's, if it's making profits and you want to keep those for your lifestyle and as the owner of the business, you want to make a, you know, I don't know whether it's a hundred grand, 200 grand, 300 grand, a million a year. I'm not sure what your profits are, but if you're comfortable with just having that all to yourself 
as the owner or if you want to take on an investor who really could care less about dividends and interest payments and at the end of the day wants you to grow that thing and sell it. And you have to decide, like, is this a grow and sell? You mean, you know, and there are various factors that would go into that timing, market, industry, um, obviously momentum, things like that. Um, and so you got to decide once you decide, okay, yes, I want outside money. I'm, uh, this is a thing that's going to be built to sell and um, et cetera. Then, you know, for, as far as investors, I'd say this. My, what I've learned about investors is, and I'll simplify it because I tend to simplify things and I don't want anybody who knows me and invested in me to take this the wrong way, but here's, here it is. The best thing an investor can do is do no harm. Kind of like the doctor, kind of like the, the Hippocratic Oath, right? Do no harm, help others. If your investors are the opposite, they're toxic, they're causing problems, they're difficult, and you even can sense that up front before you go into that marriage or you do due diligence to talk to other entrepreneurs, you should steer really, really clear. You need to find a partner who kind of follows that mantra, which is we'll be there thick and thin, ups and downs. And believe me, we had our ups and downs. I don't want this story to sound like it was a success from the get-go. We almost went out of business a number of times. I was thinking about what day job am I going to do so I can keep this barely afloat on my nights and weekends and not have to shut it down. You know, it was like that bad at times, but you want people that are be there during the downs. You want people that will root for you and cheer for you during the ups and just essentially do no harm. They don't have, but the one last thing is to, I would say, and this isn't a knock to anybody or anything like that, but like I would say I have found that the strategic investor is a myth. People that think that you can take on a strategic investor, someone that's in your industry or a potential acquirer and that you'll do a business uh, commercial deal together where they're buying your products or you're buying their products or whatever it might be. And you're, you know, cross promoting one another and they're, they'll do that because they put cash in you and they want to get a return on that. And that's why they'll do it. I found that to be totally false. Motivating a company to do anything is very difficult. Um, just because they invested in you does not necessarily mean they're going to have a Rolodex or make intros or really even do anything. And so I just come back to as long as their cash, their check clears, <laughs> doesn't bounce and they do no harm, you know, that's a good investor. So, so talk us through the story between taking on investment and, and, and ultimately the acquisition. I mean, what, what were the, the kind of key milestones that you think about in retrospect were, were the key you know, points along the way that there were sort of inflection points for you guys? So you want me to start with the investment or the sort of the exit? They were definitely different periods of time. So cash came in, just to give you some time timelines, cash came in in 2008, uh, September-ish, October-ish, okay? Uh, first 500 grand. Um, then there was about 500,000 in bridge loans that came in over the course of... 2009 and 10. And then in early 2011, we took the final $250,000 from Fatolia. And that was the last outside money we took. Um, I guess, yeah, yeah, it was the last outside money we took. And then that was 2011, early, and I, I want to say January. And the exit started, I started to think about selling the business in late 2013. And um, it finally, the deal was closed in mid-2014. What triggered you to want to you know, contemplate selling it? 
Okay. Well, we were doing less than 100 million in revenue a year, but more than 10. And we were growing very rapidly year over year. And they found a buyer and, and we we're losing money. We were losing a lot of money. We had raised, gosh, like 40 million in, in private equity and venture capital and stuff like that. We're burning a ton of money every month. That was a controller, mind you. And it was a little bit scary. This is, this is, um, not, this is not the company you sold. This is the one that you- This you is the previous one. Prior. This okay. is where I sort of got my experience. And let me just, I'm giving, I'm, my answer, the reason I'm telling you this is you'll, You'll, you'll understand why. They sold the company in um, February 2007, and the whole world imploded in October. And they, they, they sold it for over 200 million bucks, and they did extremely well, the founders. And, and even I got a, you know, a nice check, my first exit as, a, as an employee. I had some options. And the next, you know, six months later, the world was freaking blown up, imploded. The stock market started crashing and tanking. The economy started crashing and tanking. And we all know what happened by 2008 and nine, right? So I remembered that. And I remembered things do not last forever. Things do not always go up. People will not always be doing M&A. Customers will not always even be in business. They'll go out of business too. And so when I got my business off the ground and humming and running, I had in the back of my head, and I had at one point written a blog post that was something of the effect of hop off the train at the right time. And my blog post was about Dig, the story of Dig and how Kevin Rose had a billion dollar offer or something like that. And I could get my numbers wrong for Dig and he didn't take it. And five years later or four years later, it was freaking worthless. Done. Totally shut down. And I'm like, I don't want to be that. So I remembered Wire Image. I remember their timing. I remember Dig and I remembered their timing, which was not good. And I said, as I'm growing, I, we were on the Inc. 500 in 2013. We were on the Inc. 500 in 2014. We were on the Inc. 500 in 2015 as one of the top five fastest growing media companies in the entire uh, USA for those three years in a row. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't going to last forever. There is no way I can grow this until I'm, you know, 50, 60. And so why not, while the growth numbers are as nice as they are, why don't we look to exit? So that really is what fueled it is probably this just lesson that I had instilled in me back from 2007 and Wiremage days of timing is everything. So, such a good, such a good point. And uh, you could you could look at you could add to that list of companies uh, as Dig would be one, Groupon would be another. When Google wanted to buy them a couple of years ago for whatever twelve billion dollars or whatever the number was, it just you know massive valuation. Um, so such an important lesson. So for you, you made the decision back in late 2013. Take us through the next steps. Did you hire an M and A banker to take it to market? What what did that look like? Sure. I'll take you. Um, so I did not hire a banker to answer your question. I, I think a lot of people kind of hear record scratch when I say that and they're like, what? But uh, I didn't. And I sort of have always been the kind of person that's like, I can do anything. Um, maybe it's just in me, it's just, I, I'm, I have a financial background, so I don't want you to think I went into the M&A process completely naive. I mean, I do, I am a CPA and I have some level of sophistication around these things. I've negotiated thousands of contracts and deals um, and I'm not a lawyer, but I just sort of have a knack for it. So I went into it thinking, I don't want to pay somebody 5% to do this. Plus they want, usually they want a retainer, I think, and, and those can vary, but I think they can be in the six figures. They could be, you know, you know, low, a little less than six figures, but either way, they were a big chunk of cash to write a check for. And I was just always so scrappy at our business. Our business was a profitable business from 2011 onward. Maybe it was break even in 11, made money in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. And, you know, the, the, the now it continues to make money and the acquirer, you know, is, is very happy with it. And so 
I just was always scrappy. And so I didn't do that. And, and, and I felt that I knew who the potential acquirers were and, um, they were music publishing companies. They were music rights management entities. They were licensing houses and aggregators of content. And I, tr- I knew the major players. I mean, I sort of always kept a pulse. I did a lot of BD with them. I was in contact with their corp dev folks, just whether it be, you know, just through LinkedIn or, or through friendly emails, just trying to keep on their radar. And um, I tried to do it myself. Now, that being said, I did, and I did ultimately do myself. That being said, the process was wild. I got varying bids for the business. I went through a couple of different term sheets. I went actually went through a couple of different negotiations that ultimately one of them did not close. I was down the aisle. I was walking down the aisle and did not, it did not close. And I, I ended up closing with another party at a, at a, at a good price and everything was great. And it's a good story. But, um, so, I, so what I want to say though, before I kind of, kind of, you know, just answer it like that is I want to say this, if I could go back and do it again, I might have actually engaged a, a banker. And the reason is, is that my life was crazy at that time. I was growing the business, hitting the, you know, Inc. 500 with the growth. I was just traveling. I was selling. I was, you know, HRing. I was keeping the team, you know, together. And at the same time, I was selling the company. And it was just so much that I actually wish someone had probably run what I would describe as a formal process and just said, here are the numbers, here's the growth, bids are due by this date, you know, and just really sort of formalized it and solidified it and kind of done a lot of the early legwork of, of the selling um, and taking some of that burden off of me. But at the end of the day, it worked out great. So I don't really have a regret. I just think I would be more, a little more open-minded the next time around about using a banker is all I mean with that. So you have the the business development uh, and corporate development people on LinkedIn. You're connecting with them. You've got these kind of relationships. You you went to them and said, how did, how did you approach it? Look, did you use the classic, if, you know, we should do a strategic partnership or some sort of partnership? Or did you come right out and say, look, you know, we're thinking of, of selling the business. Would you guys have any interest? Yeah, I think what I did was I sort of softly reached out to Corp Dev. And what I, you know what it was, John, was I got, I got my first bid and I'm trying to think how I got my first bid, but my first term sheet, if you will. And, um, once I had one, then the conversation was super easy with everybody else, which was I've received an offer or we've received an offer for the business. We think you'd make a good fit. And we'd like to see if you're interested in having a discussion about, you know, you know buying the company and becoming one together. And, and, uh, it, you know, the timing is, is good now because we've got this offer on the table that we're seriously considering. And, um, you know, I didn't shop it like in that light so hard, like where I necessarily told them exact details of that offer, but I was, you know, I was just letting them know, like, you know, and, and so I think I just pretty much came pretty open with it. Like I didn't beat around the bush. I think it was like, we're, you know, I'm thinking about selling the business and our numbers are great. And, you know, are you, are you, do you want to talk? I think we make a good fit. And, you know, I would lay out the case for why, but usually it was pretty obvious. They, they knew of us. They, they may have even worked with us or ha- had known of us for various reasons. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard. I think I was just, I'm pretty straight up. Like I don't, I don't really have time to play around to that works to my credit, but I also get called intense a lot of the time and people, you know, you know, maybe abrasive as well, but, uh, it, it works for me, you know? (laughs) Ryan, walk us through the story that you went down the aisle and decided not to get married with the, with the one company. What, what happened? What, what caused that to go off the rails? You know, it was so funny. So I'm trying to remember it 
play by play because it's been it's been a little while, but but it was it was something like this. So the number wasn't great. Like I didn't think it was as high. I didn't think it was exactly what we were worth, but it was the best offer, and they they did seem like a good fit. So let's say. Let me ask you this: How much more was their offer than the first one you used as leverage to get the others interested? Okay, um, I'm, I can probably answer that. Um, well, let me just say one thing. Keep in mind, this wasn't the one I even closed, yeah. right? But but the, the, so we'll call it the second bidder, if you will, or the second you know potential uh, acquirer was twice over to, twice to a little more than the first. I mean, the numbers got wild. Like people were were valuing it. One, you know, I was offended kind of by the first offer, but it was an offer nonetheless. So I was thankful out, you know, outwardly to them, but inwardly I was like, that is not, we're not accepting that. You know what I mean? Like that's just way too low, but it is an offer, you know? So we've got the, we've got a discussion going, you know? What, what was in your mind as to what the business is worth? Like, where were you deriving your valuation from? What, what, what enabled you to determine that the first offer was garbage? So MCNs, uh, which is maybe a term you've come across, are called multi-channel networks. Those are that's what those uh, you know that's what it stands for. And they were beginning to be snapped snapped up. And those are businesses that operate in the YouTube space. And they weren't exactly like us because we were more of like a a, a rights management organization for music rights holders. But we we did have a small MCN within our corporation. Uh, called the AdRev Talent Network. So we had a little MCN and, and other MCNs were getting bought and they had pretty high valuations. And, and the biggest one is Disney acquired a company called Maker Studios. And um, another one happened with a company called Otter Media and Full Screen. And there's been a number of these transactions. So essentially, there was some press around the numbers in those deals and I, and I could back into the revenue of those companies using you know, accountant spidey skills, if you will, right? It's, it, there are certain things you can do to kind of estimate people's revenues, even if they're not public. And so I knew that, and, and our VC, you know, investor to his credit knew some of the marketplace transactions very well. He was up to speed on everything. And so we kind of knew what we thought was market, if you will. And the first offer was not at market. It wasn't, it, it wasn't even close to be honest with you. So. Got it. So you get the second offer that's more than twice the first and you're walking down the aisle, what happened? So, oh, it gets funny. So we were literally um, pretty much done with the deal. And what is that? We, you've, you've term sheet signed? The, oh, oh, that's done. Yeah, term sheet signed. And it had the term sheet had a uh, usually term sheets. And, you know, I guess I'll just speak from my limit experience, but I guess I'll say my experience term sheets have uh, oftentimes have a exclusivity period, meaning you agree during that period not to talk to anyone else and not to solicit any other offers. If someone approaches you, you tell them, unfortunately, I'm not a, you know, able to talk about this at this time. So no, thank you. And you know, that's what you're supposed to do. So we, that offer had an exclusivity period in it, but that exclusivity period in it, I had negotiated an expiration date on it. So it was, we had the term sheet signed. We had the lawyers done. I mean, John, I incurred something like $200,000 in legal on that, on that, literally like walking down that aisle. It was crazy. I was just, I had really expensive counsel, I thought, who were good, and I wanted to get this deal done right. And what happened was, is we got to the end and they started 
giving us pushback on what I would describe as the most minor of things. And it was something as silly. I won't give you exactly what it was, but I'll make up a story. It was which choice of law to use, California or New York. It could have been something so dumb as that, or it was something like what indemnification basket amount to use, or you know how many years I need to stay on, whether it's two years or two and a half years. It was such a small. It was literally like what I would call a very minor um, thing, and it was dragging out, and it dragged out so long. I started to be like, really, like over this, like this is frustrating. And what happened was the exclusivity period expired. And I'm like, I, I was very upfront about it. I was like, guys, this exclusivity period is expiring. At that point, uh, you know, we're free to, you know, talk to other people. I would, we want to in good faith, close this deal. So we'll hope that you can continue to march towards the finish line. But once the exclusivity period expired, I, um, immediately, literally like within, Within a week, it was, I had another term sheet. And that term sheet was from a bidder that I didn't even think initially would have been someone I would have approached. But they had come into my, you know, we had come onto their radar at some point during this like month of, of, of trying to close the other deal. And they had a much higher, even higher number um, that I actually thought was market price, to be honest with you. And, and, I had a risk and it was kind of, they had, you know, uh, you know, which, which to go with, like if bird in hand, will this other deal close? Right. Like I, we could go down the aisle with this other one and come into like, you know, probably like there's just a lot of risks because you have a deal in your hand. You're like at the finish line. You're just, we could have asked, we asked to a couple of minor points and been done. And, um, I just took the risk with the other, with the other, the newest, you know, bitter thing, uh, you know, thinking that, the other guys would probably still be around if I didn't close that, though they might kind of be like mad that I jilted them out the offer and their price might go down. And that could be a risk about it, but like it is what it is. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Like it, I just took the risk and that other deal, sure enough, it closed and it worked out and, and that was it. And you so, the, so don't drag out deals. <laughs> if you want something, you got to, I mean, I've learned that as a buyer, you know, you can't, you can't dilly dally. You got to jump and pounce and close, you know? In the case of the, company you walked down the aisle with and didn't close. Have you had the chance to, or maybe spoken with someone there to understand, was there some, were they playing games? Was there some reason that they were using these very trivial things to, to hold up a deal or what, what happened? If you think about it in retrospect, I'll say what I think. The answer is I'm still friendly with them because I, I, I did, I tried to do it in, in the most respectful way. And I believe that, that it was, it was done that way. And, and so we are still friendly. Um, we do still speak and, you know, I send them other things that I find are interesting and we're in, we're in, we're in touch. So we didn't burn the bridge uh, in terms of why I'll be honest. I'm not sure it, it could have been something as silly as like their law firm was like, we don't usually see that or like, you know, slow to just turn around documents in the last like week because a guy was on, like, I don't really know, but I don't think it was intentional. You know, um, I don't think anybody high up was like, it was just slow and it, and, 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 to me, you know, we kind of felt like their price wasn't, if their price had been higher, I don't think we would have, I think we would have been more patient about it, if you will. Right. Um, but because I just still had that back of my mind, like thought of like, I just, I'm, I want to, I want to close the deal. The price is good, but it's not really market. And maybe there is someone else out there. And then when that time came and, and there was just show, there was just other interest from other places, it just, 
it just didn't work. I don't know what to say. Like, it's just how part of life is luck and timing and just choices you make. And like, I don't know, I navigated, I look at what happened in my success and it was just a series, a series of, of daily hard work and and daily difficult decisions and like, and then timing and and, and chances. And what are the odds that that would happen? And we would meet this person and and this and that, and and that that discussion would go a certain way. And I just think it just kind of ended up that way. I don't really know what to say. I don't think there was like some odd wizard behind the curtain trying not to like close with us, you know, and to jerk us around or anything. How much, how much more was the zealot networks offer than the one you didn't close on on a percentage basis. Are we talking ten percent better, fifty percent better? Uh, again, it was um, more than the two numbers you just put out. It was, it was, it was, it was a market price offer. Wow! You know? Wow! Yeah! Wow! So, so much better indeed. It Did, was, yeah. And 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 what was the reaction of the the firm that you, you ultimately didn't get acquired by when you told them you were going to negotiate with Zealot? Um, I actually, and I felt, you know, they look, they were big boys with what I would call big money, and our deal to them wasn't really that big of a deal. Like, I think they were kind of like, life will go on. This happens. Like they weren't, they, they, I don't even know. I, I wasn't, there was no anger there. There was no, maybe there was some disappointment, like the, the deal, you know, it was, but like, I, I thought they, it was handled fairly professionally. They, the thing was they wouldn't budge on their price. It was pretty, I was like pretty straight up about it. And I'm like, look, at this point, and you know, exclusivity is expired. We have received another offer. The other offer is better than yours, and I'll be open about that. You know, I wasn't like very exactly specific on details, but I'm like, it is significantly better than yours. Would you consider moving, you know, your price up, right? Because they're, you know, just right. I haven't we haven't signed that term sheet yet, and we, you know, it's just trying to do it as professionally as you can and they wouldn't move and it was like I, I mean at that point they had the they had the option to move and they just didn't I, I don't know if they thought I was joking or like they thought the other one wouldn't close or they just didn't care or they just had reached their max price and they weren't budging it whatever it was it just it made it the decision a little bit easier on me because I had I didn't feel like I walked and turned my back and never looked back I, I sort of gave them the opportunity to be like you know, it's yours if you want to, you know, move upward, you know, and they just didn't. So all you got to do is go back to the legal agreement and change one number and, you know, the rest of the contract can say the same, you know, and they just, they just didn't want to do that, you know. But Zealot Networks it's did. It's a big number. And, and, <laughs> yeah, but and, they did. Yeah. And they, uh, they acquired the majority of the company for more than $20 million. So that must've been a nice, uh, a nice check to clear. Did you they buy, did. did you buy yourself any trophies? Did you get yourself something that, uh, signified the the win for you i did um i i, I waited a tiny bit uh i was driving you know i just had a, I, I bought myself a tesla so but i did i did wait and i was and that's sort of my st- i'll never my that car is my trophy you know so um i'm not i'm not too flashy i don't i don't necessarily wear you know super fancy clothes or or, or what that kind of thing or jewelry and so i think you know just a nice electric you know no emissions vehicle was <laughs> was what I could do. So no Ferrari or anything. So I have a kid. It's actually a good family car I found. So it's perfect. Um, yeah, saving yeah. the world and a great trophy at, uh, <laughs> unto itself. 
Um, where can people reach you now, Ryan? What are you up to and where do we reach you? Um, well, you're, you can reach me uh, through email. I give my email out pretty publicly. It's Ryan, R-Y-A-N dot L dot born, B-O-R-N at Gmail. You can hit me there and you can see my blog at RyanBorn.net, um, R-Y-A-N-B-O-R-N.net. Um, you can hit me on Twitter at BornRyan, B-O-R-N-R-Y-A-N. Um, and even if you go to my website, you'll see on the con- on the about page. If you scroll all the way to the bottom, you'll even see a phone number, and you can call me. I'm I'm not I'm not you know uh, not hard to find. So um, yeah, and what I'm up to next. So yeah, it's a good question. So I'll tell you that story if it's helpful for your listeners. Um, so I. After the business was acquired and, and bought a majority, and then they did end up acquiring the whole business. Um, it's just they we hadn't publicly talked about the full price, but as you can imagine, it was it was north of the twenty for the full enchilada. And after the whole thing got done, um, I had been I felt like I had been on just a very long, difficult journey of stress and work for eight years. And I know that might not sound like a lot because some people work 50, 60 years and grind it, you know, or, you know, a lot more than eight, certainly. And, you know, but for me, it was just a lot of, it was a lot of my body. I had back pain from just being hunched over my computer and bad posture and stress. I had stress. I had gained some weight. And so, um, I really had neglected what I would call my family and, and I felt like it was just time to be around more and get, take care of myself because I had money. And so I didn't, I wasn't as concerned about how am I going to pay the mortgage and et cetera. Right. So, uh, I, I resigned, um, I'm still an advisor and I, and I, and I feel like I've been, you know, adding a good deal of value and trying to, trying to, um, stay involved, but light, very lightly, not certainly not day to day. And um, more like a coach, you know. And um, so I got back in shape and I'm in great shape. Uh, uh, my chiropractor said I, I'm the most improved patient he's ever seen and I'm feeling really good. And so, but I got bored. So I'll tell you that. So it got boring really quickly because what would happen is, you know, my morning, mornings aren't that bad. You can keep yourself occupied. You hit the gym, you know, you, you drop, you go to school, drop a kid off of school, you hit the gym, you, you know, get your juice or your smoothie, whatever it is. And then the 1130 AM or noon would hit and I'd be just so bored because I just wanted action. So I've been drumming up a few things um, and uh, doing a little consulting right now. And I, I don't have a, too much to announce, but I'm looking at potentially buying a small business um, uh, uh, as an investment, if you will. And um, I'm, I'm also helping an entertainment company and I won't, can't be too specific, but I'm helping an entertainment company with their digital strategy. And that's very fun. It's a very promising company. And um, they gave me a very kind of nice uh, tasks to work on that are challenging. So what I'm getting at is like you, your happiness, what I found is you've got, for me, it's just, I've got to stay busy and active. I've got to work on something that can grow. And, um, and so being, you, you know, you can't, you can't sit around and drink all day, you know, at the pool. It's just, it just gets old really quickly, you know, and, and for me, and I don't golf. I've also found about myself. I don't, I don't have a ton of hobbies, so I'm not a golfer. I don't, I'm not a card player. I, I can, pl- if you, if someone asked me to play golf, I love to play, but I don't seek it out. If someone asked me to play tennis, I love to play, but I don't seek it out. I certainly love sports, but I don't, I don't like obsess over them. I think like some people kind of find golf as their, you know, their calling, if you will. But so for me, it's just business. It's just staying busy in the brain and challenged. And so, 
yeah, that's what I'm up to. Um, I'm, I guess you could say I'm up to my same old, same old. <laughs> I, have a, I have a feeling we're going to hear more from Ryan Bourne. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. You're welcome, John. Uh, and I hope it's uh, helpful for your listeners and good luck to everybody out there. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.